Welcome, everybody. My guest today is Dr. Shaham Das. He is a consulting forensic psychiatrist. He is in London, and he regularly assesses mentally ill offenders in prison, court, and in locked, secure psychiatric forensic units. Dangerous, violent, mentally ill patients is his specialty. We'll talk a little bit about some of the uh, violence we're seeing in our streets these days, uh, some of the uh, mass shootings, if he has any opinion about that. Talk uh, about how to rehabilitate people. He's uh, very big on what they're doing there in the UK, which is giving people a chance. And with treatment, as how, how often do you hear me say this, mental illness can be treated. And when they are treated, they are now no longer engaged in the criminal, criminal activity. Guess what? His book is In Two Minds, Stories of Murder, Justice, and Recovery from a Forensic Psychiatrist. There it is. Uh, we, of course, are out there on Twitter spaces, and I'll set up the restream in just a second during the intro. And uh, I see you all there. And if you want to come up and speak, uh, just raise your hand. I'll bring you up to the podium, and you'll be streaming out on multiple platforms, Twitter, Twitch, Rumble, etc., cetera, uh, Facebook, YouTube, and uh, let's get this thing going. Our laws, as it pertains to substances, are draconian and bizarre. The psychopaths start this way. He was an alcoholic. Because of social media and pornography, PTSD, love addiction, fentanyl and heroin, ridiculous I'm a, I'm a doctor for sake. Where the hell do you think I learned that? I'm just saying. You go to treatment before you kill people. I am a clinician. I observe things about these chemicals. Let's just deal with what's real. We used to get these calls on Loveline all the time. Educate adolescents and to prevent and to treat. You have trouble, you can't stop, and you want to help stop it. I can help. I got a lot to say. I got a lot more to say. And we will say it right here. Let's, uh, let's continue to say it right here. Uh, again, appreciate y'all being here. We are out on Twitter Spaces. We will look for you there for your questions and calls. Uh, I'm on Restream. I'm also watching the uh, Rumble Rants, although for some reason that does not come up for me right now, which is interesting. Uh, and, of course, uh, on, as always, on Restream. Uh, hmm, Margaret Campbell saying, Drew wants hospitals back. Apparently that worked well. <laughs> I, I want treatment back. I, I was complaining to Dr. Daz about what we do in this country, which is we um, leave, we make everything legal and we leave people on the streets to die. That's, that's, that's our version of rehabilitation. Well done, particularly in California. So let me bring my guest in here. It is Dr. Shaham Daz. The book is Into Minds, Stories of Murder, Justice, and Recovery and a friend, from a Forensic Psychiatrist, Dr. Daz. And I understand also you have a YouTube channel as well. Tell us about that. First of all, thank you so much for having me on, Dr. Drew. It's an absolute pleasure. So yeah, I have a YouTube channel. It's called A Psych for Sore Minds. And I basically, it's a crossover between offending with a little sprinkling of mental illness. So I analyze high-profile cases. I interview people that have experience of mental health issues, such as people who've been sectioned in, in my country. Something for everybody. Section, section means being held against your will? Is that what that means? Or Yeah, yeah detained uh, under the Mental Health Act, yeah. How does the law work there? Here, you can hold people for three days if they are immediately homicidal or suicidal with a plan. Uh, and as once, once the plan goes away and they have a place to eat and sleep, even if that's on the street, they're out. I have to say it's, it's pretty clunky and it's quite complicated over here in the UK. So there's lots of different sections. There's civil sections which last up to 28 days. Mm -hmm. Then there's like extensions of those that last six months. And then there's criminal sections. So this is the kind of thing that I would give evidence for as an expert witness. Mm -hmm. So when you're detained under a criminal section, you're in a secure hospital for a long period of time, sometimes years, occasionally even decades, 
for really thorough rehabilitation to make those individuals safe so they can be released. How do you make a determination or can you up front whether somebody is likely to respond to treatment? Um, I think the first thing is you have to assess them thoroughly and actually see what their issue is. So what is their treatable mental illness? Of the patients that I see, a lot of them have severe mental illnesses like schizophrenia, for example. So a typical presentation would be that they're hearing voices uh, and they might have paranoid delusions. So they believe that people are watching them, following them, poisoning them, wanting to hurt them. So that's why they offend. That's why they lash out. So the first step is to see exactly what symptoms they have. Right. Or they believe they're saving their children from the devil. So they kill them. So the devil doesn't get them or weird things like that. Um, but that's, yeah. that to me is kind of the, the easy part. The, the, the hard part for me is the access to stuff, the, the personality disordered, sociopathy, severe narcissist, this kind of stuff. And, and those, you know, uh, there's a lot of drug addicts that are functioning in a, such a fashion that it appears they have one of those personality disorders. And sometimes they, go away or sometimes they hide them how, how do you what do you how do you deal with these characterological issues so you're absolutely right i think of it as a spectrum on one end of the spectrum you have what i was talking about which is when they have a mental illness that directly causes their offending and in theory that's mm. relatively easy to treat you get the right medication for the right length of time you get rid of those symptoms and on the other end of the yeah. spectrum like you said yourself you have your personality disorders these are people with like antisocial personality disorders or psychopathy. So they, you'll, you'll obviously know this, but for your viewers, they will be impulsive, aggressive. They will not care about the rights and wrongs of other people. They will uh, not mm-hmm. care about the law. So that's a lot more ingrained. It's actually part of their characteristics. And it is possible to rehabilitate those people for years and years of therapy. But from my clinical practice, they need some sort of internal epiphany. They'll never change if we just right. enforce therapy on them. They might go through the hoops, they might say the right things, and they might be released from right. hospital, but they'll never actually change their patterns of behavior unless it comes from within. Which I imagine so is actually very because to drug It's the exact same thing. It's the exact same thing. And, and, I, and I'm sighing because I, I, we have a pandemic of that stuff over here. I mean, there's just so much of these access to personality problems. And, uh, you know, as... You can speak to this, but the problem with the access to folks is uh, they're fine. It's the world that's effed up. Why should they change? So wh- what I have found is that they go through this cycle of getting arrested, going to prison, getting sectioned, hospitalized. And after many years of just their freedom being restricted, they finally realize that even if they don't have a change in empathy or morality inside them, they realize that there's a better way that they can fit in with society. So, so they become pragmatically cooperative. <laughs> they become willing on a certain level. They, they surrender Absolutely. to a certain point. Yeah, it's interesting. And, and sometimes when they live a certain kind of life, they start to have insight, right? They start to then go, oh, okay, people do, you know, I can trust somebody. I can, right? And, and that, that I was telling you before the mic's heated up that I, I have a lot of frustration dealing with real criminals because my experience of real criminals is that they'll often, they'll often sit back like this when I'm trying to work with them. They'll throw this kind of surrender posture and they're like, uh, tell me, pr- prove to me that you've got something to say. And uh, then they'll kind of often go like into this cooperative mode. Like, okay. 
and then this, and then they just close off. You're full of shit like everybody else. And that's sort of the body positions I'm used to criminals displaying right in front of me. And, and it gets very frustrating. It's like, how do, you get, how do you get through that? I think you have to have realistic expectations. And when the people are on criminal sections in the UK in these secure hospitals, they're often there for a very long period of time. You know, it could be years. So it's unrealistic to expect that you're going to make a breakthrough necessarily in the first few weeks or even mm. the first few months. Sometimes it's about going through the, the cycle again and again and again. And if I'm being honest, sometimes we pressurize, we bully them into engaging in their own rehabilitation. Yeah. So it's about patience and uh, realistic expectations. Yeah, we, we can't, we don't do any of that here. We really just don't. We used to, there was a time. Uh, now, now we just let people essentially die is really what we do or, or create horrible chaos in everybody's lives. Um, you know, recently, I'm going to have ask you to analyze a couple of things. I'm not sure if you feel comfortable doing so, and please let me know if you don't. But uh, Amber Heard was in the public recently uh, with Johnny Depp. And I, I really feel like they did a public service because they showed how messy psychopathology is that there's not a good person and a bad person necessarily there's a lot of just shit going down he was a severe alcoholic and who knows what he did in his blackouts and you know what his alcoholism had him thinking about and doing and she was formally diagnosed borderline and histrionic mixed disorder which creates tons of distortions and acting out behaviors and how, how did you see all that <laughs> so uh, very good question i have made a few videos on my channel about this, particularly critiquing the expert witnesses uh, in their trials, because that's very similar to what mm. I do. So here, here are my, my broad thoughts. I think that neither yeah. of them came out particularly well, but I think that we saw uh, Johnny Depp as somebody who's quite vulnerable, who is quite insightful, and who was willing to own up to at least some of his behavior. You know, he admitted so that far. there was something broken about him. So far, yeah. Uh, and yeah. He, <laughs> he, admitted, he, at least on the surface, uh, indicated that he wanted to change. Amber Heard, however, yeah. didn't come across that well at all. In fact, I think the, the public right. tide of opinion changed on her. So initially, people were quite supportive. Uh, and going back to the diagnoses, you mentioned borderline personality disorder, histrionic personality disorder. I mean, I'm a bit skeptical about experts diagnosing somebody for the, uh, for the purposes of a defamation trial. But I have to say, mm. that a lot of her activities and behavior are very typical for those diagnoses. So as you will know, people with borderline personality disorder tend to have quite explosive relationships. They tend to have unstable moods. Uh, they tend to have turbulent relationships. They can be quite impulsive, quite aggressive. And then you get people with histrionic personality disorder who uh, don't take criticism very well. They need to be the center of attention. Uh, and Amber Heard does at least seem to be many of those things. And one big aspect of borderline personality disorder is this fear of being abandoned which would explain right. why they stayed in this uh, sort of toxic relationship for such a long period of time. Yeah. So I have yeah. to say that I think yeah, these they, diagnoses they, are quite accurate. Yeah, they can't, they can't tolerate, the, the borderlands can't tolerate the breaking and you know, forming of relationships. Uh, and, and to be fair, if I understand it right, they, they did formal neuropsychiatric testing on her, right? I mean, she actually sub submitted herself to actual testing, so there was objective data that the psychiatrist was relying on. Now, you know, you, maybe you ought to talk, speak to that. How, how reliable is the, the various personality profiles and neurological testing that's out there? And my, my big question would be, does it, how much does it change over time and setting? Sure. So I think there's inherently 
a bit of a gray area if you look at the setting of when somebody's making this diagnosis. So in real life, yeah. in patients that I will see, that you will see, generally speaking, people are going to be open, they're going to be honest because when they're seeing a clinician, they're doing it because they have a problem that they want to solve and they want an accurate right. diagnosis. I think when you're doing it in this kind of slightly circus show, when you're you know, both celebrities and there's tens of millions of dollars of, uh, of, of money that can be attributed to either side, then obviously there's, there's an inherent bias about the way somebody might come across. So if you're Amber Heard, you might want to exaggerate some of your symptoms, particularly the symptoms related to trauma. Uh, or if you're Johnny mm. Depp's uh, legal team, you might want to really elicit the fact that she's got all these personality disorders to make her look more unstable. So already there's an inherent bias, in my opinion. Uh, and as to the neuropsychological testing, I mean, it's generally quite accurate, but it all depends on how truthful the individual is being. So again, if there's an agenda for the individual to come out a certain way, then any test, I think, any psychological psychiatric test can be bent to, uh, to come out with a certain but, outcome. But most of the more comprehensive tests, though, include evidence of uh, adulteration, right? I mean, at least you can say the reliability is X. Uh, yes, you're right. They have the reliability factors. There's, you know, uh, truthfulness axes inbuilt in them. But you know, if you're clever enough and if you're uh, a very talented actor or actress, I believe that you can you can certainly sway them. Interesting. In That's interesting. Now, so I actually work pretty well with borderlines. I had to deal with a lot of them, you know, obviously on a drug unit. It's a very common diagnosis, or at least people behaving as though they had that disorder. Sometimes it all goes away when their drug addiction settles. But the, the really frustrating symptom that I found, and, and I, I've tried to speak to it to help people understand it, and Amber Heard ex ex exemplified this a bit, was their distortions. The, I did not find that they lied. I, I found that they typically just experienced something totally different than what happened. That, that's why and you'll, you'll appreciate, you, I'm sure you always bring somebody in the room with you, it's particularly with borderlines, because you walk out, and uh, had a nice exchange, and the patient goes, he was abusive to me, he yelled at me, he tried to t touch me in inappropriate ways. And you're, you're like, what? Where? That is not what you get. I, I remember I used to get it sort of uh, self, like righteous indignation, like, oh, what? How dare they? And then I was like, oh, oh, I get it. This is the disorder. Uh, so I just sort of expect it now. What? How do people sort of, and, and no one out in the real world sort of understands that's going down. They, they, can, they consider it lying. And then you put memory on top of it. And of course, memory is a very imperfect mechanism in our brain. So things get further distorted by memory. How would you coach people up to understand when they're around that and, and what to do with it? Well, the first thing that I would say is that, as you uh, in, in, uh, indicated yourself, borderlines are very emotional. So they see everything through this emotional lens. I mean, I think everybody does to a degree, uh, regardless of whether they've got a personality disorder, but it's, it's ramped up yeah. people with borderline. So if they're yes. in a good mood, if they're angry, if they're annoyed, maybe even annoyed at somebody else, not the clinician in front of them in, in the room, right. they will act out on this. And the other thing yes. that, you, that you mentioned is splitting. So borderline uh, people often either absolutely love somebody or they absolutely hate them. So they denigrate when they're in a bad mood. Or they go, or they go back uh, and forth. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Or they idolize if they're in a good mood. Yeah. And as you say, they go back and forth. So yeah. I think the first, yeah. the first key is understanding that. So you understand the way that they're presenting today is not necessarily how they'll feel tomorrow. And it's not necessarily their core beliefs. It's just that they're reacting emotionally. But I have to say within my cohort of patients, so people that have committed serious offenses, 
people with borderline generally are not criminalistic. So they don't intend to be violent or to be offenders. They just that's cannot true. contain I, I, their that's, emotions at the time. That's their aggression. Yeah, they can't contain their, their aggression at a certain time and, and feel sort of weirdly justified in doing something outrageous sometimes because they're, they're, they're As, well, part, some people characterize borderline as unregulated hostility. If that hostility takes over, it, they can do stuff. Absolutely. So um, I, I see people with antisocial or dissocial personality disorder far more in my patient cohort. Yes, and they intentionally sure. offend. You know, they're, they're lifelong offenders. Yeah. And they don't really regret their actions. They regret that they, get, they got caught, but they don't regret their actions. Whereas people with borderline, mm -hmm. they lose their temper, they flare up, and then uh, either immediately or days later, they're actually very remorseful and very introspective. But of yeah. course, the cycle keeps happening. Right. I, I, I have this distinct feeling that the American society, the, the general character of the American psyche has become much more borderline or histrionic in the last five years in particular. I, I just, all the, the, the sort of weird histrionic delusionality wildness that goes on on social media. I, I wonder if social media had some, some role in, in inciting all this, but you know, and I, I noticed back in the day, the, the borderlines, I've said this before, always came into the hospital with at least 20 lawsuits under their belt. That was in the 80s and 90s. And the attorneys in this country caught on to the, what they were doing and developed a bunch of safeguards so that their frivolous lawsuits were not so commonplace. But I feel like the acting out now has moved into the social media sphere. Yeah, I think it's, it's very easy to, uh, to be offended on Twitter or on other social platforms. And you see these people, I'd probably say that they're more narcissistic than they are borderline, but they just love mm. the attention. They love being, you know, offended on behalf of a group of people. And Twitter's just the perfect platform. You know, you say that something bad has happened to you or that you've experienced some sort of uh, bias from somebody in society, then everybody jumps in and pats you on the back and, you know, says, poor you. And then you yeah. gain popularity, you gain a following. So you can understand why people yeah. do that. That, that used to be the legal system. That used to be what, what, what happened in legal systems. Like, poor you, you're right, they, they abuse, they, you were wronged, let's go get some money from that person or let's make them suffer. And now you just make them suffer right away on social media. Uh, so what's yeah, the answer It's weird. What's, what's the solution? I, well, let's think about it. So how do you deal with borderlines? Borderline need containment. The answer is more containment, not not more uh, encouragement of of acting out. Uh, and how do we contain ourselves is really the question. And I don't know. I don't know. Maybe some safeguards in social media against actually hurting other people that would do some of it, like real consequences. People with this kind of acting out behavior do understand consequences. And as you said, don't intend to be serial offenders and hurt people. They do it in their emotive moments. And if something put them, you know, a, a beat in front of it, and if people understood, you know, generally that's what was going on is, you know, we have, we have, okay, I want you to address this. Maybe, maybe you feel comfortable, maybe you don't, you let me know. But we have moved into this world, as you said, where things are perceived through the prism of affect and feeling states, which is normal. Humans do that, but that has taken on a priority. That now is the reality independent of what the evidence suggests, whether cognitively yourself or the actual evidence in the world suggests. The, what you felt is the reality, independent of the reality. And as such, I think we're just encouraging people to continue to unravel uh, and, and to not, be a, not, not to be connected to a stable sense of self, regulated emotions, and reality. It's the opposite. 
Yeah, yeah, I agree with you. And and as as we both said, I think social media uh, just exacerbates the problem because before, when somebody was in a bad mood or had a grievance, they might tell a few people, they might get it off their chest, it might be quite cathartic, and then they can return to their normal lives. But now that you've got this platform where you can share your opinion, have lots of people jump behind your cause, there's no um, there's no endpoint to it. There's no resolution. It actually helps keep your emotions charged if you just continue to be engaged in whatever your original grievance was. I've also noticed, and, and this, this again, this is very difficult territory to talk about without offending somebody or getting in trouble. So I just want to talk in gross generalities that it feels also, in addition to prioritizing emotionality or, or affect, you know, uberalis, <laughs> it, we've also said and we've taken the position that fluidity and self-concept is an asset and i don't know about how you were trained but as i was trained a, a lack of stability in our sense of ourselves, even it had a broad spectrum to it you know let, let's say it's not we've opened up the spectrum to how people can identify themselves and that's a good thing but the the sense that it can be anything any minute I worry about that. I worry about the instability of those sorts of self-concept, whatever the, whether it's career or your race or gender or sexuality or whatever your identification system is, whatever it might be. I, I'm not taking aim at anything. I'm just ta talking about the fact that we have cosine fluidity that is part of what is in the pathology of things like borderline. And it, it just worries me that we're, we're you know, I, I don't know. What do, you, what do you think about that topic? So what I would say to that, Dr. Drew, would be that, in my opinion, almost all the offenders that I see have some sort of inferiority complex somewhere, and that can take many different forms. Uh, and because they feel or they had feel inferior at some point in their lives, they lash out once they think that they have the upper hand in a power dynamic. And that could be through violence, it could mm. be through mass shooting, it could be through you know, joining a gang, it could be through stabbing a random person on the street. But there's always an inferiority complex. It's either that they were you know, bullied when they were younger or they were underappreciated by a parent or they Look, were- I'm going to stop uh, you. I'm going to stop you because you, I, I, I really want to drill into what you mean by inferiority complex because what I hear you describing is resentment and feeling that they were done wrong. Like something, yeah. there was an injustice that was uh, I I unconscionable and they're going to set that scale right. Is that- it's not really inferiority necessarily, right? It's just it's just an injustice. Um, I mean, I think I think the two are intertwined. Really, I think that if they okay. feel that they've been wronged in some way, then uh, you know, I'm not I'm not talking about one incident. I'm talking about a pattern over yeah. their lifestyles, yeah. over their childhood, yeah. and they feel, yeah. uh, you know, they feel belittled. So I would say that it's an inferiority complex. Uh, probably using a okay. layman's term uh, for most of the offenders that I see. Yeah, and. And would it be accurate to say that oftentimes, if not, I don't know if it's typical or not, that the, the original offense is in relation to the primary caretakers, and then that just gets repeated and repeated and repeated across a lifespan? You know, I have to say, Dr. I think it is very random. I've definitely seen some cases where there's been a very clear direct link between the perpetrator when they were victimized or bullied. Mm. So to give you a specific example, uh, I've seen on more than one occasion people who have something like schizophrenia and they hear the voice of a relative, stepfather, a father who's abused them in the past. But sometimes it does mm -hmm. seem a bit random. It seems like 
whatever trauma they went through as a child, it seems, uh, unless we haven't dug down deep enough, it seems on the surface mm. uh, completely at odds with the victim that they've chosen. Interesting. And it, I want to just drift over towards the the you know topics of the day. In this country, we have people, you know, picking up high powered rifles and just shooting randomly at people at a distance. Um, do you have any sense of what that is, or where those people uh, they they a lot of a lot of ink is being spilled on sort of them appearing being odd or you know having difficulty with social functioning and i'm not sure people even know what they're saying when they sort of take aim at these people with those sorts of uh, observations but i wonder if you have any insights into what what's going on there uh yeah good question i think that almost all of the perpetrators of mass shooting are what you said so they're usually isolated they're usually marginalized they're usually withdrawn from society and that can be for another number of reasons. It could be that they're shy, could be that they're bullied, uh, could be that they have a form of depression, could even sometimes have, uh, could be on the autistic spectrum. So you, you have that, and then that's usually always on a background of some kind of social uh, issues. So whether that's poverty, whether that's a lack of a job, whether that's drug use. So you have all these layers. And then, as we were talking about before, they usually have some kind of grievance. It's either against an individual or a group of individuals, such as you know school shootings when they were bullied, or it's against a section of society. So you, you might have some you know right wing uh, individuals who believe that their jobs have been taken by immigrants, for example. In some way, they feel wronged. Uh, you have the incel culture, so you have uh, men who feel entitled towards uh, getting sexual partners. So there's something that makes them feel, as I was saying before, inferior and feel wronged. Uh, and they just make mm. this snap decision to do something very extreme and un- understandable about it. Do you have any hope that we're going to tackle some of this stuff? Is there, are there, do you have any theories on how we could, uh, you know, sort of be more preventative? Um, that is a great question. <laughs> I think there are solutions, mm. but I think all of the solutions take funding. It's all about money at the end of the day. I think it is harder to do in the States than it is to do in the UK because I think your healthcare system and your mental health system is is uh, not as well provided as ours is already. So you've got a big deficit to catch up with. Uh, you've got problems with you know health health insurance, whereas our uh, our healthcare is provided for free. And then you've got access to guns. Probably not a particularly comfortable topic to talk about, but it's definitely a factor. Mm-hmm of why you have these mass shootings mm-hmm. in America and you don't have the equivalent kind of uh, uh, crimes in the UK. Um, but to be specific, I think it is about both the social care and psychiatric care. So you can have all the secure units and you can have all the uh, forensic psychiatrists like me that you want. But if you don't take away some of the social problems like poverty, like lack, lack of jobs, like all these uh, deprived areas with gang culture, then I think it's, you're going to be fighting an uphill challenge. So if you can tackle those by funding, by you know, extra school activities, um, by social clubs, by providing people with legitimate ways of, of making a living, then that's going to decrease the chances, I think, of, of people lashing out at society. It's, it's, can, can I ask it you, Dr. Green, what, just, do you think, what do you think the... Uh, the I, don't, I don't know. I've, yeah, I feel overwhelmed by it because I, I feel there's tons of jobs now. We can't find enough people to fill the jobs at the moment. Uh, and so... It's not really lack of jobs. It may be lack of. It may be a failed education system, which is really where we we lose people right away. Um, for sure, we we need real help there. 
Uh, there is hopelessness, you know, and mental health issues that are just profound and just a pandemic of all sorts of trauma and chaos in people's family systems. And then our systems for addressing that are just flimsy at best. They're just not even, they're not, they're not there that you can't, you're not, you're not allowed even to identify these things and sort of go after them. It's just, uh, it's just, it's just not happening. I, I don't know what our problem is. We have a deaf, we have an un, in, in, inadequate supply of psychiatrists. We have no psychiatric beds. Our, our community healthcare centers are just sort of clearly not been working. They, you know, they do, people come in and really work hard. There's services there, but it, it's hard to get the engagement. It's really an overwhelming situation. It's very difficult. And and I think what our government does, does is kind of throws money at people rather than coming up with a systematic kind of you know evidence-based way of dealing with things. They come up with things that get them votes, quite literally. Then that's sort of the the way they go after stuff. Things that sound good or that make good you know sound bites on television, or that again collect votes. You know, we're going to give you thousand dollars back. You know, okay, I'm voting for you. And that that is not going to help somebody with these kinds of problems we're talking about. And and then as I've told you before, again off 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 camera, the laws in this state, you you're prevented from helping anyone. I mean the the idea that you could put somebody in in treatment for weeks, just it's like nirvana. Like what? It's, and it's not it's not that we don't have the resources to do that. The laws prevent it. Prevent it. The the position is who are you to say? And families with resources and physicians and you know, all sorts of structured uh, living, ready to ready to hand, are told to scram. Who are they to tell tell anybody how to live their life? That's sort of the attitude that our state government takes. How dare you yeah. tell tell your schizophrenic, heroin addicted son how to live his life? He's living his best life on the street, and you just think he should live the way you want him to. It's literally the philosophy that they that they come up against. Something with it. That that does sound like an almost insurmountable problem with the actual culture itself. Um, I'm not sure what the yeah. solution is. To yeah, it's it. cultural. Yeah, you're right. It's cultural. That that that's a, that just that frame helps me kind of think about it a little bit. That, that we have a real problem in this society with things that inter interfere with our freedom, not only from a standpoint of treatment, but also from the standpoint of pathology. The idea that that our will, our self-will and mo motivation is affected by an illness? No, not possible. Doesn't that, That's still somebody just making, making their best choices. I wouldn't make those choices, but I'm not them. So who am I to say how they should choose to live their life? And is, think about that. that. That's our culture. That's it. Yeah, now, I think, interestingly, I think be, such a thing is too much freedom, to be honest with you. Uh, that's exactly what it is. And, and interestingly, if if that patient we are talking about that's living their best life has a dementia and we don't jump in and help that person, well, now we're guilty of abuse. We've abused that person by not jumping in and taking care of things. But a schizophrenic with the same symptom complex, agitation, irritability, uh, disorganization, uh, hallucinatory, that patient, you're not allowed to walk up to them and offer help. But the dementia patient, yeah. if you don't help them, you're guilty of abusing that person. Isn't this crazy? Super duper crazy, right? Same organ system, so I, brain, same symptom complex, you know, and and we have laws protecting one and preventing the other. Yeah, that is that is just completely illogical. I think our problem in the UK uh, is, is slightly different from yours. So we have systems in place and we have a culture that wants to help people who are mentally ill but we don't always have the resources, particularly in the deprived areas. So you mentioned before a lack yeah. of hospital beds. I can absolutely resonate yeah. with that. 
So, you know, I work in, a, in yeah. two criminal courts in London, and I cannot tell you the number of times where we found somebody detainable. So they're so unwell that they need to be sectioned under the Mental Health Act, but we just cannot find the beds. Yeah. So they end up going back to prison while they're waiting for a bed, and they get the bed by the hospital releasing the least unwell person. So that doesn't necessarily mean a person that's ready for discharge, but they're just desperate for the space. And I have to right, say over my right. career, I've noticed that people, uh, patients are coming through the criminal justice system far more often. So maybe 15 years ago, 20 years ago, if they were psychotic, hearing voices, a risk mm -hmm. to themselves, they would end up in hospital. Whereas now, because there are so few hospital beds, the, the level of mm -hmm. risk has to ramp up. You know, they need to be attacking people, yeah. stabbing random yeah. people, you know, shouting at random people in the street before we'd even consider sectioning them, which to me is just, uh, just really yep. counterintuitive. Yep. Well, here we will go one step further. If, if they're swinging a machete around and then go, I don't want to kill anybody anymore. I'm going to go have dinner, you know, uh, by panhandling at the freeway and I've got a tent under the freeway. Um, that's it. They get out. But it, it's, it, it's, um, it's kind of extraordinary. I, I worked with one of the LA County Board of Supervisor members who was advocating towards creating a, a they were, they'd actually had approved and spent millions of dollars developing a large wing of the county facility, criminal facility, the, the jail, creating a state-of-the-art wing that would have been a psychiatric hospital, essentially, because all the, the patients were ending up in the, when the, in the jail, which is not appropriate either. So what they were going to do was build this huge, this really elaborate state-of-the-art unit. It looked fantastic. The county supervisors rejected it, and st instead put the jail itself on the on the on the road to demolition and so you couldn't put anybody in anything and just yet they have to stay out on the streets so what's the reason behind that you know is that to save money is it pure cruelty what's the, what's no, the no it's 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 <laughs> i i don't want to speak the the the, the rash the logic i've heard has been bizarre it's it goes something like we we're, we're 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 excessively racist in the application of our laws, which is true, uh, and we are overly criminalizing uh, normative behaviors, and this doesn't do anything for anybody anyway, except you know, warehousing people that don't belong there, which is also true. I mean, there's truth embedded in all this, right? But then the, their solution is forget the whole thing let's just get do away with the whole thing and thereby there won't be any more mental illness and there won't be any more criminals because we won't identify them anymore it's like it's like <laughs> it's like right it's like like saying um you know kids aren't passing this test they're basically doing this aren't they that's the that's their solution yeah to yeah the they're saying problem. right it's, it's exactly right it's like these kids aren't passing their math exams so we're going to either stop giving that math exam or just lower the quality of the exam, or just pass everybody. That, that, that's our solution. Now everyone passes. Now no more problem. Everyone passed the math test that they weren't passing before. And that, that's the same idea. So, so it, it's, it's difficult because there's truth embedded in their criticism of what we've got, but their reaction is this thing, this thing that really hurts people. It really harms people, and, and that's what's sad about it. Uh, listen, uh, Dr. Doss, we have to take a quick break here. Uh, we got a lot more to talk about. We're going to take calls as well when we get back. We have people that want to talk to you. We'll get to it. Uh, but first, a little, little message from our friends at GenuSil. We'll be right back. I think we have found the holy grail of skincare. GenuSil has absolutely changed, certainly my skincare regimen. 
I like that vitamin C serum, the under eye creams, skin nourishing primer. Susan loves the eyelash enhancers, uses it on her eyebrows as well. GenuCell has everything to make us both feel and look amazing. Best part, the quality of the products. Using pure ingredients like antioxidants, copper peptides, and a proprietary calendula flower base, GenuCell knows how to formulate products to perfection without irritation. For Susan Sheets, that annoying dry area under nose during allergy season, like right here, she's tried everything, but no matter what, the skin is flaky and dry. Nothing seemed to help until she started using GenuCell's Silky Smooth XV Moisturizer. It soaked right into the skin. She was hooked after one use and now loves all of their products as well. Every single product is developed by a pharmacist, making sure that all the ingredients are safe and effective. Right now, you can try GenuCell's most popular collection of products and see what I'm talking about for yourself. Go to GenuCell.com and enter code DREW for 10% off. That is G-E-N-U-C-E-L.com, and the code is D-R-E-W. Welcome back, everyone. We are talking to Shaham Das. Uh, the book is Into Mind, Stories of Murder, Justice, and Recovery for my forensic psychiatrist. We'll be taking your calls in just uh, a second. Dr. Das, what will we get from reading the book? Uh, so the book is my professional memoirs. It is a chronological look of how I became a forensic psychiatrist. Uh, and I pick out my most kind of gruesome and fascinating cases, the ones that really affected me emotionally and, and how they shaped me as a psychiatrist. And I'd like to think it's, it's a bit funny, a bit sort of silly and humorous in parts as well. Give, give me an example of one of the, of one of the cases. Without uh, okay, I'll tell you what. I'm, I will, I will give you a choice, Dr. Drew. Would you rather hear about um, like the most sort of tragically emotional case I've seen, the most horrific form of self-harming that I've seen, or a case well, let's where get I think in, Let's get into some faked. good... Let's, oh, faked what? What did they fake? That sounds uh, interesting. Fake, faked mental illness, uh, a fraudster, female con artist. I'm convinced faked mental illness to get out of a criminal charge. Well, talk to me about... That's issues. intriguing to me. Yeah, I hope that... that I, I think everyone would like to hear the self-harm, but I want to hear the, the faking one because that's interesting. That's really hard to, to sort out. Go ahead. Okay. So uh, in my book, I call her Darina. That's not her real name. Uh, I've anonymized mm -hmm. all my patients. But she was a lady who I assessed uh, a couple of years ago. So she was an ex-model. She came from a very privileged background. She had lived in the UK for, since being a teenager. She was a multimillionaire because she married a, uh, a CEO and then divorced him. So she was on some uh, fraud charges. So her, Darina, her cousin, and her ex-boss, who she had an affair with, committed this carbon credit fraud for um, several million pounds. And she was in the background kind of siphoning money, laundering money. So she didn't commit the main bulk of the fraud. And what happened was all three of them were caught. All three of them were tried at the Old Bailey, which is like our main central criminal court in the UK. And during the trial, Darina's son, her three-year-old son, caught a very rare form of leukemia and became extremely unwell, almost died. So her trial was stayed, so it was delayed. Uh, the other two defendants were tried, found guilty, ended up going to prison. And Darina, when she was, when she was up for trial again a year later, she had another forensic psychiatrist assess her for her fitness to plead. So that, as you'll know, is her ability to actually go through the trial process. But what was quite interesting is that she completely disengaged from the court process. So she wouldn't take any phone calls from her solicitors. She wouldn't open any letters. And when the solicitors finally did, the lawyers finally did speak to her, she was just crying profusely in these floods of tears, talking about how upset she was about her, her son who even though he'd recovered, he was still extremely unwell and could relapse at any moment. 
So the Crown Prosecution Service, which is you know, our equivalent of, of, of your uh, prosecution, asked me to carry out a second opinion assessment on her fitness to plead because they, they weren't quite buying it. And then when I assessed Darina, I have to say I was slightly suspicious right from the beginning because she's really passive aggressive. She wasn't really answering any of my questions. But interestingly, she was able to answer questions about her background. So as you'll know, when you take a psychiatric history, you ask about you know family, childhood, relationship history. She was able to answer all of those questions. But when I asked her about the actual um, alleged offences, she was completely unable to answer any questions. She just had this flood of tears. Uh, she kept saying that she was really de depressed and that the courts wanted to take her children away from her and that I was part of it. And basically, I didn't <laughs> let her uh, cry her way out of it. So I was you know, polite, I was empathetic, but I carried on questioning after her flood of tears. And what I found um, unfathomable or unfeasible was that she couldn't remember even the most basic details. So she couldn't even tell me yeah. that it was a fraud case. She couldn't tell me uh, that any family members were involved when I specifically prompted her, like her cousin. She couldn't tell me the name of the man that was her ex-boss that she had an affair with. So my conclusion mm. in my report was that she probably was fit to plead, but she was refusing to engage in the court process. At, at least, at least obfuscating, right? Yeah, absolutely. But at, the, least, uh, the, yeah, the, yeah. at the very least, yeah. The, the, mo the most interesting part of the story, I think, is that to my surprise, the judge actually um, overruled my evidence. So he went with the other expert, wow. despite the fact that I mm. clearly said in my court report that I thought she was capable. So I think the mm. judge, just like Dorino, was using mental illness as a smokescreen. So I think he thought for humanitarian reasons, he didn't need to try her. You know, she's got a very ill child. The other two main co-defendants already in prison. And that's mm. fine. You know, I didn't have a problem with that if it was for humanitarian reasons. What I had a problem with is I think the judge was also using mental illness as an excuse, as a smokescreen, just like she was. So yeah, very frustrating e case. Excuse or bias? Like he was like overly sympathetic and biased. Or is it the uh, same thing? I, I mean, I, I think he definitely was oversympathetic. There's no denying that. But I, yeah. I, I can't prove this, but I genuinely believe that he knew that she was fit to plead if she wanted to be. Because my evidence was so strong. Really you know, like, interesting. And also her level of functioning. She was, you know, looking after her children. She was cooking. She had something resembling a social life. You can't be all those yeah. things and unfit to plead. Yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting. So in my world, it would be, my job would be to get through all that BS and to find out what's really going on. Yours is just to document the BS <laughs> and really say yeah, that, that it is BS. Yeah, exactly. All right, let's take some questions and calls here. Oh, by the way, uh, on Rumble, there's a lot of uh, talk about evil. People are just evil. There's no such thing as mental illness. How do, how do we make people understand that, yes, there are horrible people out there that do evil things, uh, how do we differentiate for people evil versus mentally ill? Because there's a lot of mental illness of all different stripes, and they're not, and they and people in those illnesses do horrible things for many, many, many different reasons, and it can look evil. And uh, I guess you know, go ahead, you you answer that question. So, well, firstly, I would say I'm not sure that everybody can be convinced uh, if they're not open-minded and they're not rational. But if you're if you're really open to to listening to my suggestion, I would say. As we spoke about before, Dr. Drew, those people with clear mental illnesses who directly yeah. act upon those illnesses. And I know because I've seen it with my own eyes that if you give them the right medication yeah. and you, you know, look after them, uh, give them psychotherapy over a long period of time, then the person they become, even months or years later, is completely different. So they, completely different. Uh, they do not, 
yeah, they don't. You mentioned before uh, people, mothers that have killed their children because they believe that they have demons yeah. inside of them, right? So I've seen something very similar a couple of times in my career. I've done videos about yeah. high profile cases on my YouTube channel. Yeah. And when you see them go through this rehabilitation process, you can see the guilt seep into their souls. And, you know, that's actually part of their rehabilitation is to get them over the depression. But on the other end of the spectrum, we were talking about personality disorders before. Absolutely. I think there are some people who are inherently bad. I don't know if I'd use the term evil, but I'd certainly use the term psychopathy or antisocial personality disorder. Uh, but I would say yeah. that they are damaged in some way. There is something that's happened to them at some point in their life that has led to their behavior. That doesn't excuse their behavior. It doesn't make them any less yeah. criminally culpable. I still think they should be punished. Right. They should go to prison if they don't right. have a, a, a treatable mental illness. But it at least explains why they have become who they've become. Yeah, the, the really monstrous stuff, and I, I think monster is probably a better word than than evil, but the really monstrous stuff is people with a certain genetic psychopathic whatever you know parts of the brain where empathy exists isn't working very well and then you traumatize that person in their childhood and now you got a bad mess on your hands and it, it, it is that is where people go bad <laughs> that is where where evil resides and and i and i don't think those people are treatable I, i'm not sure you, i mean you might be able to contain them but they're not really treatable i mean i suppose if you're talking about like pure psychopaths for example then yeah yeah, I, I think they're. I think they are untreatable. I think that they can. Some some of their personality disorder can burn out over time, and they might decrease mm. their offending for reasons that we spoke about before, because they've gone through the cycle of going in and out of prison, in and out of hospital. So mm -hmm. it might not be an internal moral epiphany, but it might simply be because for for their own uh, selfish reasons, they don't want to have this kind of lifestyle of constant offending. So I don't know if you call yeah. that treatable because did you change that or was it you know something that, that yeah. eventually occurred to them? Yeah. But they're changeable. Let's put it that way. Yeah. For some some of them. Th that is it. It is interesting to me that a lot of uh, access to stuff does settle in the fourth and fifth decades of life. Like people, they tire of living a certain way. <laughs> they're willing to try something different. You know, they, they you get you get tired as you get older. I think that's what it boils down to. Evil is when you know what you're doing, you don't care. Yeah, uh, Casey's saying that. I think that's that's essential. What we're talking about here. When you not you only don't care, you can't appreciate that you're hurting. You don't. You really don't care. You really can't even appreciate. It. This is uh, Gene. Let's get some calls going here. Uh, connecting up to Gene. Uh, Gene, you got a D. You got to unmute your mic. There you are. What's going on? Hi, Doctor Drew. Hey uh, my question is, and to Doctor Soham. In, in the United States, uh, it, it appears, and I know, that um, people are not, that are mentally ill, are not treated to the best of the ability our country could do that. True. So there are people that are out doing crazy s stuff in society. But then we compare the United States with other countries that treat their mentally ill and then it comes back and says the united states you know we have problems and other countries don't mm -hmm. but they do have a problem don't they it's just well i gene oh gene you you uh i don't know what happened to you but oh. if i if i'm getting your question yeah. right is is the question that we have more psychopathology than other countries or are we just treating it less and less effectively, or both? Right? We're we're not we're not treating it, so therefore we have a lot of P 
people out in society causing harm to other individuals because we don't treat it. We don't put them in mental hospitals when they really, you know, for the average person think that, you know, they should be treated instead of being, you know, out causing harm. Yep, I agree with you. Let's see what Dr. Das has to say. So thank you for, for that question, Gene. I, I would say that uh, I, I would be the very first to raise my hand and say that I don't think our system in the UK is perfect by any means. We certainly have a lot of people out on the streets who are risky, who are mentally unwell, some of whom are, are quite dangerous. Um, but from what, from what I understand and from talking to Dr. Drew, it seems that there's a slight difference. And the difference is we want to treat them and we have the systems and laws in place to treat them but we just don't right. have enough resources and hospital beds. Right. But and, from, and, from, and, and Dr. Drew, you'll know I, more about this than me. Well, and, and, I, and I'm uh, giving you, we have this strange and at once strange and glorious system here where we are 50 states. And some states, like I was in Indiana a couple of years ago, and they were doing a wonderful job in the jails at treating these people. They were wonderful. And I, and I came back, I thought, why, why can't, you know, my God, there's, I didn't know it was, I didn't know in the United States it was possible. So a lot of my complaint is about the state of California, which is a huge state with millions and millions of people. And we are at one extreme. And I would say Indiana, at least when I visited them, was at the other where they were, you know, the insurances were available. Everyone was employed. The insurance companies were held accountable to the outcomes and the prison system included treatment. And I saw, and I actually followed somebody through through treatment after a couple of years in in prison, and she did fantastically in the treatment. So it's possible in the United States. It's just that it's a state by state issue. And uh, you'll have to forgive my ignorance, but how does insurance tie into this? Because as I said before, all of our treatment is for the NHS in the UK is free. So yeah. I'm making assumptions that a lot of the people in your country they don't get covered, so there isn't an impetus to to look after them in the long term. Well, they they are. There's various. Um, safety nets so-called the county has safety nets so there's county systems there is a medicaid which in this state is medical which is pretty decent system there's medicare which treats the over 65 very well and then there's the employed insured and unfortunately that that system depends on which states you're in the insurance companies are allowed to play games in certain states uh, here's I don't want to get, I've told this story before, I don't want to get too deep into it, but just know that, that they have games they play to, to muscle their way to minimize their services provided, even when people have tremendous needs. They, it, it, they, they require it to go to lower levels of care and outpatient treatment and other things that are not as likely to be effective. So that, that's, again, a state, to some extent, a state-by-state -state issue. And, uh, you know, it's in, in this state, it is in addition to the resources, the, the delivery, the, the resources, and then the availability of uh, beds and systems and, and caretakers, we're weak on both. And we have laws that prevent us from doing the work on top of everything else. So it's, it's really, it's really bad in California. It's, it's, sort, it's sort of ridiculous here. Uh, let's get some more calls here. Enough of that. I, I'm getting, I'm getting wildly cathartic. Um, this is Mark. Let's get Mark in here. MB, Mark. Um, again, be sure to unmute yourself. I see you're up. There you are. 
Yeah, hey, uh, interesting talking about the treatment, but I'm more curious about the prevention. Yeah. Uh, so will the pendulum ever be able to be turned as far as prevention? Because it seems like so much of the problems we have with these mass shooters, you know, so many young men mm. come from bad families, mm. you know, and so how do you change that? Just curious your thoughts about that. Oh, I forgot to say hi, guy. Hi, hi. <laughs> so, so appreciate the call, Mark, and the question. So we've sort of talked around this a little bit. Um, it, it's a very difficult, challenging topic. Uh, and Mark is tilting at the idea that destroyed or disturbed family systems play a significant role. Um, we've talked about the, 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 the resource system and the lack of integration and the lack of a culture that helps people is, I, I see as the bigger problem. What about the family of origin? What, what, how big an issue or can we even tell? Um, I would say, so of, of the patients that I rehabilitate within the secure units, they're there for many years and we get to know them fairly intimately. You know, we meet their family members and I would absolutely agree. I'd say that a, a vast majority come from broken families. You know, they come from either uh, abuse or poverty, sometimes drug use. In fact, I would go further than that. I would say that it's, it's very rare to find somebody that's not had that kind of background in that that has led them to both offending and also to serious mental illness. So I absolutely recognize that's a problem. As to what the solution is, I mean, that, that is a very difficult question. And I think it boils down to money, as we were saying before. You know, we have a massive pro problem with funding and social care in the UK, uh, as well as mental health services. So you need the social care to look out for families uh, who live in poverty and who have abuse problems and, you know, to remove children and to put them in care. And then on top of that, you need the funding in the mental health services to pick up individuals earlier on so they get the treatment they need before their risk profile increases. Well, in this country, you're not allowed to talk about families. Just not allowed to talk about it. That, that, that the politicians ever talk about it. I, I, I would argue, if based on your observations, that at least teaching people the importance of a healthy family and stability and how much children are affected by instability in the family systems. And, uh, you know, uh, do you have the adverse childhood experience scale there, the ACE scale? Were you over there? I've, I've heard of it, but I, we don't use it. Um, particularly yeah. So, so only maybe 15 years ago in this country, did physicians start to accept the reality that bad childhood experiences affect mental health and physical health? It's 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 astonishing to me that it took until well into the 21st century before physicians went, well, we've noticed that these people that have heart disease and are smoking or the heroin addicts or the accidents are all people that had one of these things happen to child. Imagine that. And what, what you're not allowed to educate people about is that divorce, domestic abuse, which is a big, broad category, substance, a substance-using parent, somebody in prison, divorce. These are all adverse childhood experiences, all of them. And that trying to avoid these things is what children need to be healthy and not end up in Dr. Doss's program. Uh, but we're not really, because, because I think people here fear that we're going to, we're going to start to, we're going to start to prescribe what a healthy family system is, right? And the fear is we're going to go, 
oh, it's going to be cisgendered, heterosexual. You know, no, no, no. That that's not what where where we would go. We would go generally. You kind of need two people. One is just like huh, one. God bless you if you're trying to do that. But if you've raised child with with two of you, you know it's it's impossible. So you need you need the you need the extra and preferably three. Get grandmother in there too, or grandfather in there. That, that's you need you need manpower. You need people. Number one, and they need to be there over a long period of time, and they need to create stable, safe, quiet environments, loving. That's it. That's the, those are the requirements to, for kids to kind of grow up okay. Now, there's many other things that they can get exposed to along the way, for sure, and that have kind of massive impact, you know, out in their social spheres and with their, you know, shit's still going to go down. But do you agree with me that we can, we don't have to prescribe what a healthy family is in terms of any kind of, you know, whether it's two males or three males or four males or whatever it is, it can be just, just a stable adult environment where people are, are helping kids thrive. Yeah, absolutely. I would agree with that. I think the problem for me, Dr. Drew, is, is that education is only part of the issue. So getting the message yeah. across is one thing. But actually doing something about it is, is actually really difficult, you know, without the state becoming a nanny state. Uh, and as it, time and time again, it goes back to the same thing. It costs money, you know, to have decent care for children that need to be removed, to have programs for people that are victims and perpetrators of turbulent relationships or domestic violence. Everything costs money at the end of the day. Um, and yeah, I just think it's so difficult, so difficult to, to change the culture of society as a whole. I, I agree, but God, I would at least say the first step is to start talking about it. It's always the, at least the awareness, like at least awareness, maybe not education, but just awareness, agree, you know, just agreement that, yeah, yeah, it makes a difference. Not perfect. Not, not the only issue, but, uh, makes a difference. Uh, this is, uh, let's see, Dachusta. I can't quite tell what what your name actually is, Chusta. And you got it on, there you are. What's happening? Hey, uh, thanks, Doc. Uh, appreciate the opportunity to speak in your space. You um, so what made me raise my hand and want to speak about a situation here is um, most of the crime that happens in America is really a socioeconomic issue. And I'll break it down like this. Um, we know in the inner city, we have like the gang violence that takes place. Mm -hmm. But then we have like, you know, these mass shootings and different things like that that mm -hmm. happen. And then people say, okay, well, you know, this person didn't have a father or, um, you know, uh, certain issues that may have happened, a broken home or they're suffering from, you know, depression or different things like that. But we know people in, in, in impoverished uh, conditions already face these things and you don't have some of the actual violence that happens happens or that's perpetuated by like it's a specific type of demographic is what i'm saying so, so hold on so hold on so 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 is the is the comment that pointing at somebody and going they were impoverished and they were stressed and it, it becomes almost uh, a just so argument because plenty of people live like that and don't become violent is, is that the point yeah that's 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 the point that yeah. i'm making right now. yeah and, yeah and so then we say, well, what do we do about it and how do we solve it? So, um, yeah, I don't I don't want to rant too much on it. But uh, from a Georgetown study, we looked at almost 66 percent of Americans receive some type of prescription pill from from a doctor. Right. Mm -hmm. So uh, going by that statistic alone, we know that over half the population, they uh, have some type of adverse side effects because we know most uh, prescription pills are going to have, you know, suicidal thoughts, thoughts of depression. Uh, they're going to have different things things that affect you uh, uh, on, a, on a subconscious level. So when we really say, well, what's the issue here? Then we can look at Tylenol. We know that Tylenol creates a lack of empathy and we will give Tylenol 
to infants as young as three months, but we won't even give water to infants, you know, until they're about six or seven months. So I think the issue here is that we're actually just pumping people full of drugs too much and not actually working through the issues. We're not having the conversation and saying, okay, well, why do you feel this way? How can, how can we show you what you can do to not feel this way opposed to just taking a pill? And when we sit back and look at it, most Americans are just on some form of a drug and they're really so, talking. So, so, so no argument for me that we're, we're over medicated. Uh, but but how do you get the resources and the professional army uh, mobilized and the laws that allow us to go in and help them? Well, now that, that's going to be really tricky, right? But now, so so here in, in, in the United States, we're going to be like the last developed, and I hate using the term developed nation, but we're going to be the last developed nation to have socialized health care or a form of socialized health care. So when we look at what we know should be done, you know, like we're talking with the other doctor, and I know this is about him as well, and I appreciate him for being here. Um, he looks at us Americans as like, you know, like, well, it's not free. Like the government doesn't provide that. Like a lot of people look at Americans and they look at these issues like, well, why isn't the government handling these things? And because it's for profit, we understand that capitalism, especially in medicine, is is really the devil. It's the boogeyman in the room that we don't want to talk about. So we we the people have to somehow figure out how to get the for profit middleman out of medicine. We have to do it or else or else the pharmaceutical company, they're just going to keep winning because they're always going to prescribe appeal for that problem. All right, so let, that's these are big, 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 big topic. Thank you, thank you, buddy, for for uh, bringing all this up. I, I you know, <laughs> you know, you almost don't even know where to start with some of these things. Um, I'll let you try to struggle with it. The people have lots of strong feelings, but these are these are giant sweeping statements, and and we have to kind of get granular at solving them. Any any yeah, thoughts? So, uh, so thank you. Dechusta. Um, so you mentioned uh, many things there. I think you're right. I think that the, if you look at people from similar demographic backgrounds, there's certainly violence in some areas versus other areas. You know, there's poverty all over the world. There's entire countries where a lot of the population are in poverty, but the level of violence isn't that high. So I think that right. you can almost look at violence as a public health issue. So it's almost like a disease that spreads uh, into yep. areas. You know, even talking about London, um, I think it's quite different from the States in that it's very, very packed together and you have impoverished estates right next to very well-to-do posh areas and you have intense violence within those estates. Uh, and I think it's all about modeling. So kids grow up in these small ecosystems and see other people like gang members acting violently, getting money, being drug dealers. Um, so they emulate that. Whereas somebody who lives in London a couple of miles away will not see that. They'll have hardworking parents. They'll have legitimate ways of making money. They'll have good schooling. Um, so, so yeah, I, I do agree that it's not just the demographics. It's also about the environment and what children culture, uh, model. And what again. They copy. The culture, exactly. The culture yeah. again. It, yeah, the culture. Our culture is sick. It is. Uh, maybe that's a thing to you know look at as a disease model too. Because that's always the way I felt. It's like you study the culture and cases within the culture and move the culture if you can. Media is the great mover, if you can do that. He also made another point. Um, I think you would probably agree that uh, if, if indeed the number is correct, that you know, 60 to 70% of Americans take a psychotropic medication, certainly the number is big. Uh, that's, I'm guessing, a lot worse than Great Britain. And uh, the idea of... And again, he, he is right about the fact that it is the insurance companies and the drug companies that put the forces in place that motivate the prescribing. In other words, doctors are not paid 
to sit and talk to a patient. They're paid to prescribe something and move them through. That's that's the model, and it it it, it reinforces you know what we get. Uh, can I first uh, first of all ask what Tylenol is because I think it has a different chemical name here. Is it's it like acetaminophen? You have paracetamol where you are. Acetaminophen, paracetamol where you are. Oh, right. it, okay. it, it, okay. I, I don't know what uh, one study does not a truth make. So so please, uh, of the millions and millions of prescribing of uh, Tylenol, Doctor Daz and I work with patients. People have empathy. <laughs> Plenty of people have empathy. It's not as though empathy has disappeared. And when empathy has disappeared, it's a very specific situation which we were discussing. Uh, but but I will not argue with him that there's overprescribing. I think he's absolutely correct about that. So my thoughts would be, first of all, if that's accurate, if it is literally two-thirds of people in America, then that's mind-blowing to me. I, I knew it was high, but I didn't yeah. think it was anywhere near that high. I think in the UK, we have a problem with uh, overprescription of antidepressants for low-level depression, where we both know that it's not particularly effective. You know, it's effective for moderate or severe depression. Uh, and I think that's because the GPs, so we call them general practitioners, I think you call them family doctors, are so stretched, stre uh, so stretched for time yeah. to see individuals. They only have yeah, 10 minutes. That's the way it is here. It's much easier oh, to just minutes. prescribe Oof. an antidepressant. 10 minutes, <laughs> eternity here. And, and by the way, uh, there's a cultural problem here too. People get angry if you don't prescribe to them. They, they get very angry yeah. if you don't prescribe the antibiotic, you don't prescribe the anxiety medicine, you don't prescribe the sleep medicine. They're furious when they don't get the, the that, that's a cultural problem. Uh, we just put, some, I don't know if you saw that on the board, that 20% in the last 12 months have received some treatment pharmacologically for mental health disorder. There it is. 19.2% of adults have received any mental health treatment. I'm assuming that means medication in the last 12 months. 15.8% have taken prescription medication. There it is. So that's in 12 months. Um, I, I don't know what the number would be at any given moment. So again, these numbers, we can throw around lots of numbers. I, I hope people have learned during COVID that epidemiology is a, it's a fungible uh, phenomena of discipline and can be moved in very different ways. So pay, pay attention. You have, you need, you know, the way science works is you need lots and lots and lots of repetitive studies to get to it. Uh, an understanding that is close, approximating the truth. You can't look at one study and go, there is the truth. What I think might be different, and please correct me if I'm wrong, is that I think in the States, the pharmacological companies have um, a lot more gravitas. So they influence doctors because they're part of the whole insurance scheme. In here, our, our pharmacological no, companies- No, in fact, in, fact, the, yeah. in, in fact, the opposite. The, the, the insurance, we, are, we as physicians are not allowed to in any way have contact with the, with the, with the pharmaceutical companies, except- in academia, they fund a bunch of research and they fund some of the speaking tours and things like that of the academic physicians. But out in the in the in the um, community, you are not you can't even take a pen from a pharmaceutical company, or you will hear from an ethic your professional ethics uh, committees. So you're you're not allowed to do that uh, in the practice in the practice. But then people step out and they work for the companies or they have them fund their research. So it, there is a weird, cozy relationship. It's just not directly in the care of the patient. And in terms of care of the patient, the way the insurance companies work is you usually can't prescribe medication that aren't already generic. So the drug companies aren't even interested in what we're doing because they can't, they can't really influence it, what we're doing unless it's these highly specialized situations like rheumatic disease and oncology where they're making money off these highly expensive or COVID, now we have Paxlovid out there. Um, so it, it's, it's, a, it's a very complicated, weird relationship, very weird.
People so think, people imagine, people fantasize, people fantasize that somehow doctors get paid or kicked back or something. It's the exact opposite. There is a, there's a, there is absolutely a gigantic barrier between practicing physicians and the drug companies, except in these certain situations that I mentioned, and that makes it weird. What are you going to ask? Okay. Uh, so I have to ask, what do you think is the reason that there is such a high prescription rate in the States, apart from what we've already talked about, apart from the culture of wanting tablets? Is that the main issue? It, it, well, the main issue is the, the insurance. Look, the, it's how we got the opiate crisis, right? 90% of the Vicodin prescribed in this country and the world was prescribed in the United States because when a patient came in with pain, you were you, the insurance company would only pay for prescriptions you'd come in and you prescribe they would not pay for uh, psycho psychotherapy uh, um, physical therapy or uh, any of the uh, neurobiofeedbacks or anything no just get them in get them out get them on the pain meds and then a discipline developed that said that pain medicine is the answer to everything and the insurance companies got very involved with that group and supporting them and it became a discipline literally for people like me who was objecting strongly to what was going on then was told that I was causing suffering and I was a dinosaur and I was opiophobic and I was interested in harming people and I should just, you know, it, just get with the game and start prescribing opiates because that was the answer to all uh, uh, that there should be no pain in the United States. The answer was opiates. Ridiculous, absurd. So that's wow. that's the kind of thing that happens. The the, the system kicks in. The disciplines develop, and then the drug companies support the disciplines that that support their their products. And there it is, and the research and everything else. So, okay, well, listen, uh, I, I I walk away um, upset. <laughs> I'm a little more upset <laughs> than I thought I was going to be. Um, maybe you can prescribe something for me to help me feel better and sleep well tonight. Um, that, and, and <laughs> so again, as you answer your question, also about the system, it's it's. You know, you, you there's no reimbursement for spending time with patients. Everything is as, as quick as possible, and then the culture reinforces all that. Uh, people are, you know, wanting a, a medication. They want it now, and they want to get out, and they don't want to, you know, and they'll pay for cosmetic procedures and things like that, but they don't want the reality of being biological and having medical problems is just a nuisance, and they don't want to be bothered with any of that. And certainly spending time and energy and focus uh, helping with that is, no, 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 just fix it, fix it, get, get me out of here. Very weird weird culture uh the book is called let's put it up there in two minds come on now caleb there it is uh stories of murder justice and recovery from a fr forensic psychiatrist your youtube again dr das where can they find it uh so it's called a psych for sore minds there you go it's right there uh, and it's, there it it's just a range a smorgasbord of topics related to true crime and mental illness um, a bit light-hearted a bit sort of surreal a bit funny but talking about some very dark topics at the same time excellent and uh yeah i appreciate you being here hopefully we can talk to you again uh, it was kind of a, a little bit of a rorschach experience today and you kind of you see the spectrum of people's feelings they're all over the place in terms of you know dealing with these problems and thinking what we should do about it and i think that's why politicians stay away from it it, it's it's a it's a Rorschach, and they don't and they don't know what they're doing, and they don't see the solutions, and uh, and they don't get votes for it, and it's not popular, and so they just stay away from it, and it continues to deteriorate. And there we are. Yeah, and I think we have to we struggling. have to we have to appreciate we're talking about you know treating mentally disordered offenders, so they are viewed by many to be the dregs of society. So 
it, you know, it, it, it is an area where it can be quite depressing and there is massive lack in services and funding. So we have to accept that, I guess. Yeah. But thank you right. so much People for having me on. Don't... It's been an absolute pleasure. Leisure on. And uh, again, I, 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 I'm stirred, but I guess that's a good thing. Uh, and uh, I appreciate the college, appreciate the restream comments. I'm watching you guys. I'm also seeing you guys over on Rumble. You're getting kind of, uh, hmm, you guys are getting all, you're all over the place over there. So I'll maybe, I'll maybe I'll check into the, the uh, Rumble rant room. Uh, and Dr. Doss, we appreciate you being here. Thank you so much. I'd love to come on again and tell you about some of my uh, crazy stories, if you'll have me. All right, we'll do it. We'll do it again. All right, my friend, thank you. And uh, the rest of you, we are uh, from New York on Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday of next week. Same time, 5 o'clock Eastern, 2 o'clock Pacific. Uh, the guests, I don't think we have things set up yet for next week. Let me just check for you guys. No, I don't think we have everything uh, scheduled up. Um, look for me. Uh, I think I'm okay in announcing this. I will be on Legion of Skanks on Monday night. <laughs> And uh, yes, it's like it sounds, a comedy show. And then Megan Kelly, I'm going to record that on Monday. I don't know if that I airs I saw that Monday on your calendar well. and laughed. Legion of Skanks. The, the like, Legion of just, Skanks? That's just the only yes, thing that's I, on your Legion of Skanks. And that's that's your, on your schedule. <laughs> <laughs> so there, there it is. I, and apparently it's a popular Kill Tony group. And it's a very popular podcast. And they invited me. I said, all right, I go see what that's like. Oh, yeah. Tom Cigar says, will you do ever do Kill Tony? Well, isn't Legion of Skanks the Kill Tony guys, Tom's? Isn't that the same group? Um, and yes, I, of course I would. I, I don't see why not. I, of course, I, I'm very naive when I get into these things. I really don't know what I'm getting into. But um, uh, we had someone from Legions of Kinks on uh, After Dark, and they were they were kind of love. It was kind of fun, and so I figured it'd be fun to uh, join their group. Uh, Caleb, anything else in, uh, on your uh, docket? Anything to be brought up? This, uh, this was kind of a bit of a Rorschach, Rorschach ride, wasn't it? We were kind of all over the place here. So I hope people. Uh, yeah, feel like was, they got something out of it. It was very, yeah, very interesting. Very interesting topic here. Yeah. So, and frustrating and difficult and challenging and hard to solve. And it's, you know, it's not like there's one easy, simple. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'll be on Gutfeld also. What night, Susan? I see you on the restream. I don't know what night that is. Is that, it can't be Monday night also because Monday I'm going to Legions of Skanks. Uh, uh, you, can you put that on there for me? Uh, did we did we misschedule things, Susan? Wednesday. I'll be on uh, Gutfeld on Wednesday. Excellent. All right, everybody. Thank you for being here. We'll see you on Tuesday at uh, three o'clock. Uh, guest to be uh, determined. That'll be. Uh, I'm sure you can find that information at drdrew.com, and uh, we will see you all then. Ask Dr. Drew is produced by Caleb Nation and Susan Pinsky. As a reminder, the discussions here are not a substitute for medical care, diagnosis, or treatment. This show is intended for educational and informational purposes only. I am a licensed physician, but I am not a replacement for your personal doctor and I am not practicing medicine here. Always remember that our understanding of medicine and science is constantly evolving. Though my opinion is based on the information that is available to me today, some of the contents of this show could be outdated in the future. Be sure to check with trusted resources in case any of the information has been updated since this was published. If you or someone you know is in immediate danger, don't call me, call 911. If you're feeling hopeless or suicidal, call the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline at 800-273-8255. You can find more of my recommended organizations and helpful resources at drdrew.com help.